Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now, you're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. There's Odo Beckham Jr. signing his Ravens contract, son on his lap. What a cute little kid. And he was very rambunctious. He was just being a one-year-old yesterday at that press conference. And uh, he'll get to witness his dad wearing the Ravens colors, at least for one year. It's a one-year deal with a firm 15 and a truly reachable $3 million in incentives tied to receptions, receiving yards, and touchdowns. So yesterday, Peter, OBJ is officially introduced with a press conference attended by Coach John Harbaugh and GM Eric DaCosta just eight days after they didn't want to be in the room when they were asked questions about Lamar Jackson. It was a different vibe. And here is Odell Beckham Jr. taking the inevitable question of how the Lamar Jackson status factored into his decision. Have a listen. I've talked to Lamar while we was out there, and I know um, that's a better discussion for these two as far as how that's going to get handled. Um, but the goal was, you know, to come here and, and have that possibility to play with him. And uh, I'm excited about that opportunity. Before you signed, you didn't get any assurances from Lamar that uh, you guys would be playing together this year? I didn't get any assurances for anything. You know, life's uncertain. Um, I think that, you know, the, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day. Or, you know, we only know what's happened in the past. So, to me, it just was... Excited about the possibility of that. You know, my thoughts would be that he would be here. I know that, you know, these two want him to be here. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's going to be up to them. Obviously, I would assume that it, it's going to work out. You know, I have that, that faith and that hope. And um, Lamar, I know if you're watching, you know, you know <laughs> I would love to, to love to get to work with you. I'll, I'll talk to these guys over here and... Um, you know, hopefully that gets done. You know, I, I think when you when you think about the Ravens, you definitely think about Lamar, and I know that that's something. You know, I was excited about that possibility, and um, life's life's not certain. You know, just to keep it short. 
I'll talk to these guys over here. I wondered when they signed Odo Beckham Jr. whether or not they were hoping they would have a guy who could be a buffer, a liaison, at a time when they just can't get a deal worked out. I mean, look, they overpaid him for a reason, Peter. There was no one else out there to use the JFK Golf Club's auction analogy again. There was no one holding up the paddle at 14-9 before the Ravens held up the paddle at 15. They overpaid this guy for a reason, and I think one of the reasons was they hope that his presence— and maybe, who knows, his involvement can get Lamar Jackson to finally show up. And obviously, you know, Mike, this is, I've said this in a couple of places this week, this is the $15 million olive branch to Lamar Jackson. I can't imagine, look, and I've not talked to uh, Harbar, DaCosta, or anybody in the organization about this, but you don't pay a guy who's had two ACL surgeries in the last three years, who has not been truly great in six years, and who's entering his age 31 year, uh, age 31 season. You don't pay a guy like that a lot of guaranteed money unless there's another reason for you doing the contract. And it just, when I saw the numbers, I almost gasped because I just thought, man, the Ravens, when they do contracts, they're not afraid to spend money, but they want some assurance that they're going to be spending the money wisely. And quite honestly, I don't know how anybody can look at the career of Odell Beckham Jr. and think that you're going to get 80 catches, 1,200 yards, uh, 11 touchdowns. I, I, I don't, I, you can't look at his uh, career numbers, especially recently and think that he's automatically going to be what he was eight years ago, seven years ago. So this is for another reason, as well as getting a potentially a very good receiver on your team. And that's saying to Lamar Jackson, please come. And also, by the way, saying to Lamar Jackson, look, there's good chance still that we're going to take a receiver in the first round of this draft. Might not, but... You know, there could be a significantly improved receiving core. And by the way, Mike, I will also say that you've got a new offensive coordinator in Todd Munkin who takes over for Greg Roman. And everybody knows that Greg Roman was a big fan of running the football. Todd Munkin is certainly not going to be a non, you know, he's going to call runs. Believe me, you know, he's a balanced guy, but. I think that getting Todd Munkin into this organization means that there is going to be more of an effort to stretch the field a little bit now that you've got, potentially anyway, a speed guy like Odell Beckham Jr. to pair with, I think, a guy who, if he can stay healthy, could be a good deep receiver in the NFL in Rashad Bateman. I mean, and, and, you know, depending on who you get in the draft, you know, if you get, say, a Zay Flowers, you know, all of a sudden you have a team that becomes significantly more attractive, I would think, to Lamar Jackson on what, and Mike, look, we've talked about this a lot. I think this is probably much more likely to be a short-term deal than a long one, if indeed it can get done. Because I think the Ravens, by virtue of what Lamar Jackson said 
uh, in his Twitter posting, whatever, now almost a month ago, when he responded to, oh, you need an agent. Oh, you mean I need an agent to get $133 million guaranteed? Uh, so obviously there's been some sort of offer from the Ravens, a shorter-term deal, either two or three years, that is going to be either fully guaranteed or virtually fully guaranteed. The other aspect of the olive branch of the OBJ arrival is, I do believe, a sign that the offense will change. And the the Bill Polian narrative about Lamar Jackson not really being a quarterback from five years ago, that has lingered because they have been using him to run the ball, designed runs, run it, run it, run it. If they are intent on pivoting toward more of Lamar Jackson passing the ball. Think about what popped up last year when Hollywood Brown wants out. And there was this debate over whether it's because of Lamar or it's because of the offense. Well, at some point, they are inextricable. Lamar is the offense that they've designed. They've deliberately designed an offense premised on running the ball with your quarterback, and it de-emphasizes the pass, and it makes receivers not want to be there if they're not going to have the ball thrown their way as much as they would have it thrown their way on another team. If that's changing, and if Lamar Jackson can finally push away that narrative and get people to accept the fact that he can throw the ball pretty well because so many people just want to write him off as a passer because he's so good as a runner, I think that's part of this effort to change the mindset, change the dynamic, and get him to want to be in Baltimore. Whether it's short-term, whether it's long-term, just get him to want to be there. Eric DaCosta was asked yesterday the question of whether he has had any communications with Lamar Jackson since the news broke that they were signing the player in OBJ that Lamar helped actively recruit to Baltimore. Have a listen. Well, I have not talked to Lamar since the signing. Um, There's been interaction along the way. Um, You know, Lamar is in our plans. We love Lamar. Our feelings about Lamar have not changed one bit since the end of the season. we're hopeful still that we'll get a long-term deal done. Um, he's the right player for this team to lead us to where we want to be. I think the locker room knows that. The organization knows that. I think the fan base knows that. So it's ongoing. Um, but I can't think of a situation where we wouldn't think that our best team is with Lamar Jackson on the team in September. You know, there was another comment later, too on the the question of whether there have been communications with Lamar Jackson since he told the team on March 2nd that he'd like to be traded. Because one of the unknowns for me, Peter, was whether or not Lamar Jackson had decided when he asked for a trade, I'm never playing for the Ravens again. Much like Deshaun Watson when he decided to ask for a trade from the Texans. I'm just done. It's over. Trade me. Or whether it was just part of this broader negotiating dance that they've been clumsily engaged in. And I think it's the latter. Because DaCosta said they have had discussions since then. He wouldn't get into the details out of respect for Lamar. They've been very careful not to get into the details publicly but or privately for that matter. But but uh, it it makes me conclude that Lamar is willing to still play for them. It's just a matter of working this deal out. And if it is OBJ running interference or actually mediating this dispute or somehow being involved to get Lamar back, I feel like he wants to be there still. They want him there still. And it's just a question of working out one year, two year, three years, five years, whatever it is. They just have to get that worked out. Yeah, as I said and as I've written, Mike, you know, the only thing that really makes sense is either a two- or three-year fully guaranteed contract in the range of $45 million a year. Um, and everybody would say, well, geez, now you got Beckham. 
Why wouldn't you want to ensure the future? And that's a, that's a question that I think has been answered quite often in this offseason by the simple facts of this situation. That if you sign a player whose two most recent seasons have resulted in 34% of the snaps missed you're, because of injury, you're, you're basically saying that we are willing to pay somebody, you know, $45, $50 million guaranteed, you know, for, for a four or five year period when in reality we don't know. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he's not going to be able to make it through these seasons. And, and again, he might play the next hundred games in a row without ever going down with a stub toe. So you don't know that. But the fact is, I think it would just be financially irresponsible right now to give him a guaranteed contract for five years at the market level of pay. And, you know, I I keep seeing, you see it on Twitter and you see it in other places where everybody is saying, in essence, pay the man. Well, I, I get that. But what is, what's fair? What's correct? And I know the NFLPA wants to make this basically a, a test case for guaranteed contracts in the NFL. But to me, I don't see how this could be a test case for guaranteed contracts in the NFL. Because I think the only franchise that would kind of give a five-year guaranteed contract to uh, a guy who had been hurt so much recently is a House of Cards franchise. The Baltimore Ravens are not that. I've got two points I want to make as efficiently as possible. As it relates to your point regarding the Lamar Jackson recent injury history, the two consecutive Decembers with injuries that wiped him out, and last year the questions about whether or not he could have come back. That injury history in certain contexts is going to be very relevant to putting a value on the contract. I get it. But, boy, it makes it difficult to square that with what they gave to Odell Beckham Jr., who tore his ACL in 2020, came back by the middle of 2021, and he found out, oh, the ACL's gone, and he played the back half of the season without the ACL, and he didn't play at all in 2023, and they give him $15 million plus a not-so-difficult path to $18 million. And if Lamar Jackson had a traditional agent, Peter, the reaction to the Beckham contract would be, What the hell? My guy puts in five years. My guy's been here. My guy had a slotted rookie contract. You got a bargain out of this guy. His second year in the league, he was the MVP. He's made you a contender, and he can't get his second contract. You're going to give $15 million guaranteed to a guy who has an ACL that's been torn twice, a guy who didn't play at all last year, a guy that no one else is offering more than $4 million a year in base pay? You're going to give that guy that money and you're not going to take care of my guy. So this is where the whole thing's kind of been turned on its head because they recognize there's nothing traditional about this. And speaking of traditional ways of valuing a situation, you suggest a short-term deal worth about $45 million a year for the Ravens to do that. They have to be willing to give up the very strong piece of leverage the CBA gives them. They have the right to squat on Lamar Jackson for $32.4 million this year. They have the right 
to squat on Lamar Jackson for a 20% increase next year. That's $71 million over two years. That's $35.5 million that if they stick to what the CBA allows them to do and they just sit back and say, hey, Lamar, the train's going to keep rolling with you or without you. Here's what we are entitled to put on the table. This is what the CBA requires us to offer you. This is what it is. Sorry, you either take it or you don't. You either take it and play football or you don't play football and don't get paid. If they want to go hardball there, he's going to make $35 million over the next two years. And I mention that because I'm, you know, to the extent that there is tension and pressure on the teams to take a hard line with their CBA rights, you're giving away $20 million over two years that you don't have to give away. And I just don't know that the Ravens are willing to do that. I know they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to have some sweetener to get him to show up. But I just wonder how much they're going to do when you consider that they could have his rights the next two years at a total of $71 million. A short-term deal that would pay him $45 million a year may be something that ownership just won't do, Peter. Saying to Lamar Jackson, you have to play this year and next year for a total of $71 million would be penny-wise and pound-foolish. And Lamar Jackson will say... Okay, I'll just stay home. He's not going to play for that. And so we can sit here and say what makes sense. Odell Beckham Jr., why'd you give him $15 million? Hey, Mike, $15 million isn't $133 million. You know, it's, it's you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to set the stage for Lamar Jackson to feel good about coming back. That's what you're trying to do. And, you know, to me... I think, you know, I think it was Andrew Brandt yesterday. Uh, he wrote something at SI.com, or maybe it was just on Twitter, said that the precedence of this contract, of the Deshaun Watson contract, cannot be, cannot be ignored. Well, yes, it can be. This is not a court of law. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not something that, this is not a legal precedent. A team doesn't have to do something because another team did it now in normal circumstances if Lamar Jackson had been an Iron Man in his first five years in the league then in normal circumstances probably the Baltimore Ravens would be forced much against their will to give a guaranteed long-term contract much the same way that Mike Brown in Cincinnati and Dean Spanos in Los Angeles with the Chargers may be forced to do with Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, respectively. However, Lamar Jackson is just a different story. And if you don't acknowledge that it's a different story, you're just sweeping important facts, uh, which, honestly, many people in the media have done. You're sweeping important facts under the rug, and you're not looking at the situation uh, totally. Well, Peter, in response to Brant's point, there's two important facts he swept under the rug. Russell Wilson didn't get a fully guaranteed contract, and Kyler Murray didn't get a fully guaranteed contract. So if it sets precedent with Deshaun Watson, what happened to Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson? They don't have fully guaranteed deals. Look, the only way someone is getting the deal Deshaun Watson got is if they can engineer the exact same competition for the players' services the way that Watson's agency did it. You bring four teams to the table. You kick one to the curb at the exact right moment where they get desperate and they say, let's give him a fully guaranteed five-year deal. And 
what other team is going to do that? What other situation like that is going to arise? And one of the key ingredients is Deshaun Watson saying to the Texans, I'm never playing for you again. So until Lamar's willing to do that, we don't even get to that point. So I agree with you. It's apples to oranges. It's not going to happen for Lamar Jackson. At some point, he's got to say yes to a contract offer. I think the Ravens will offer a sweetener. I won't be surprised if they offer a significant per-game roster bonus to give him an incentive to be out there every week. Maybe we get to the end of the season, he's banged up a little bit, and he's thinking, I don't have any security beyond this year. Why am I going to play if I'm less than 100%, which is perfectly justifiable when you have no contract beyond the current season? Oh, wait, I make X 100,000 more for every game I play. I'll be there. So I think it's going to be something like that that they'll get done, maybe with the help of Odo Beckham Jr. acting as that go-between as it relates to the team and Lamar Jackson. Back to OBJ. He's got that ACL injury. He had surgery more than a year ago following Super Bowl 56. He acknowledged yesterday something we've been saying ever since then. He was on track to be the MVP of that game before the knee that didn't have an ACL for weeks finally collapsed on him. Here he is from yesterday talking about his recovery from that second ACL repair. I'm feeling great, and I guess I don't know if it's the second ACL because the whole that whole season I was playing, you know, without it, um, and it was a crazy thing. I signed with the LA Rams, and um, I remember Ella Travis comes down there, and he's he's like, "I just got to inform you that you don't have ACL. You know, we can redo your surgery right now." And this was week nine of the season, and um, I, I had been I just told him I was like, "I've been through way too much to come here and sign." There was way too much talk on my name. You know, the past year, like, I came here to help win the championship. Um, and I told him I'd die on the sword. And that was just, you know, the kind of reference that I used. Uh, you know, I, I just cared that much about, about playing. You know, it's amazing to think what happened. He goes to the Rams after the Browns release him. They do a physical. He's got no ACL. And the Rams let him play. And he decides to play with no ACL in his knee, and it worked all the way up until the point that it didn't in the first half of Super Bowl 56. So, you know, I'd always said I feel horrible for the guy because he was on the brink of really cashing in. If he becomes the Super Bowl MVP, he heads straight to free agency. But I think he knew what was waiting for him after Super Bowl 56. He was going to have to have that ACL surgery again either way. And he pushed it as long as he could, and it came within just a little more than 30 minutes of football, Peter, of not being a problem for him. And it's amazing to think he was able to perform the way he did without an ACL in that knee. Yeah, and he was a big factor in that Super Bowl until he got hurt, which obviously anybody who watches the end of that season and watches that Super Bowl um, is going to see a player who they'd like to take a chance on. And normally, I think you take a chance on that player for certainly less guaranteed money and probably a lot of, say, easily makeable incentives. Not necessarily if he achieves certain statistical markers, but if he simply can play. And so that is what makes this contract so interesting. You know, what makes this contract so interesting is very simple, that, you know, they paid him. Uh, to make sure that they got him on this team so that not only, you know, he can be a big impact on this team, but that hopefully uh, he can be an attraction for Lamar Jackson to make sure that 
he wants to come back and play there. Because, Mike, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot with this Baltimore Ravens team is that there's an awful lot in place right now. Uh, you, you know, where you say, man, this is an awful good team right now. And, you know, they're three tight ends deep. They've got a, a good running back situation. They've got a decent overall wide receiver situation now that could be above average if they draft a guy in the first round this year. And to me, this this obviously is a just-add quarterback team to when you look at where they are right now. And they're always going to play good defense. And so I think you know, the attraction for Lamar Jackson now is to figure out some way to get in here for a year or two at least and see if you can take this team to the promised land. And if you can, if it doesn't go well, if there continues to be acrimony, and just say, hey, listen, I want to go somewhere else, whatever. I don't trust you guys, whatever the whatever happens in the future. But I just think it makes too much sense now, and I think you're right. You know, the Ravens need to figure out a sweetener to make sure that he just gets back and the incredible acrimony ends, and they just figure a way to get him in camp so that he can play football for, let's say, the next two years. I, the one thing I don't think the Ravens should do is to do a one-year bridge deal because you don't want to be living in this situation like this all the time. Even if you have to pay, say, two years, $95 million guaranteed, you want to just get this over for a while. And then you figure at the end of two years, if it doesn't work, everybody just moves on. One last point from yesterday's press conference, and when Chris Sims and I were discussing this on Thursday, trying to predict what would be covered and what questions would be asked, my point was the most important question that could be asked is whether and to what extent we're going to see Odo Beckham Jr. with the team during the offseason program, during the voluntary portion of it, because he has a history and a habit of working out on his own, not being with the team, not being all in through the voluntary portion of that program that becomes so important, especially when you're on a new team, new offense, new quarterback, new people to get to know. He wasn't asked that question per se, but he deviated into that topic. The question related to when we're going to see him on the field again, post second ACL surgery. But as he was discussing it, you could hear and you could feel his response come to the forefront regarding his opinion on the importance of being present for OTAs. Have a listen to what he said on that topic yesterday. You know, that'll be a you know discussion with the trainer room, coaches, everybody. Like I say, I think I've been in this situation before where this is made more important by this side of the room than, you know, your teammates. If you if you're at OTAs and you were a great guy and, and you get out onto the field during the season and you don't perform, I don't think your teammates are gonna be like, well he was at OTAs and he was you know, he was there. It's more about that guy that's going to come show up for you on Sundays and be able to produce. And, um, you know, but there's also being in a new group and being able to bond with those guys, I get the balance. So it's something that we'll all sit down and figure out. But I always, I always deep down inside, thought that it was made more of a thing um, over that way than it really is with the guys that you, you know, share blood, sweat, and tears with and you're with 
more hours than your family. Eventually, you're with them more hours than your family once training camp opens and the season approaches. But he has always kind of done things his own way in the offseason. And that's important because if he is going to be a magnet for Lamar Jackson, he needs to be there. And during the press conference yesterday, Peter, Eric DaCosta, the GM of the team, said that it was clear to them that he's 100% invested. Well, that would imply that he's going to be there for all of the offseason program. Even if he's just there getting treatment and being present for meetings and watching film and being around, even if he's not on the practice field, he's going to be there. That's going to be the real question. And that question was not asked. How often will you be in Baltimore from the moment the offseason program begins until the moment it ends? Yeah, and I think over time, more and more players basically say, I'm going to work out on my own in the spring. And that has to do with the power each player has. And again, there's a reason why the NFLPA went very, very hard uh, in the negotiation two negotiations ago to give players an offseason. I'll never forget uh, talking to a couple of players back in 2011, 2012, after that CBA was done. And they were saying one of the, uh, one of the guys, Dequell Jackson, in fact, uh, was a linebacker with the Browns at the time. He said, look, I am enrolled at the University of Maryland to finish my, uh, my education. And I think a lot of players took it to do that. A lot of players took it to say, in essence, hey, listen, this is not a 10-month-a-year job. You know, this is maybe a seven-month-a-year job, six or seven months. And that is what our contractual rights allow it to be. You go to one mini camp in June that is absolutely significant, and we've got to be there. And then other than that, if I choose to come here, I will come. But I may not choose to come. And other than, Mike, I think the only time since we've been doing this show, since I've been on this show, that I've seen a real big factor in a player not coming to the offseason program was last year, Aaron Rodgers. It showed early in the year. He has a young, new receiving core. He's got two rookie receivers who have to play right away opening day. And they just were not in sync at the start of the season. So I think that that's one of the things that obviously, if you ask Mark Murphy, Brian Gutekunst, Matt LaFleur, why maybe this year you kind of play a little bit more hardball with Aaron Rodgers. Why do you do that? Because you know that in this offense with young players trying to get used to being able to hit the ground running, that you're going to have to do more in the offseason than you ever have. And it was showed last year that by Aaron Rodgers not being there, it really hurt the early play of the Green Bay Packers. And look, I'm sure that the Ravens will want Odell Beckham Jr. and clearly Lamar Jackson in their offseason program. And if they're not there and they end up playing, uh, you know, by let's say sometime in August together, if Lamar gets signed, I think then you're going to have to see a bunch of speed up to try to get a team up to speed for the start of the regular season.
The flip side of what happened last year in Green Bay was what happened in Kansas City. Tyree kills out. Patrick Mahomes is there for everything, and he gathers his receivers in Texas, takes copious notes, shares them with the team. They better integrate the new players into the offense, and that'll be the other side of this. Will we soon see social media videos of OBJ and Lamar Jackson working out together somewhere, getting acquainted on the field of play that way, beyond the confines of the Baltimore Ravens facility. That would be a very encouraging sign if it happens. And back to the participation in the offseason program before we take a break. The union did secure expanded rights for the players to not be there in the offseason, and it drives the union crazy that more players don't take advantage of it, showing up and working for free. They tried it a couple of years ago to get more of the players to stay away. It worked a little bit, but it still isn't something that has really taken root because you know, guys want to be there. They want to protect their jobs. And they know if I'm not there, some young guy that just got signed undrafted or some fifth-round draft pick is going to be there and they're going to get to know the coaching staff and they're going to get comfortable with that guy. And then all of a sudden they look at my salary and say, we can't afford this guy anymore. We'll go with the guy who showed up for off-season workouts. So it's a complicated thing, and you're right. The more a player is a star, the more they can get away with it, but it can blow up on the team like it did for the Packers last year. Let's take a break. Are things going to blow up in Houston after the draft? Specifically, will there be a change in general manager? There are rumors flying. Peter and I will discuss whether those rumors make any sense when PFT Live continues right after this. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially step up like a boss and save the day or see what life's like under the tree of life did you if you could would you when we come through it's true magic because we came to play bring the magic at walt disney world resort the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The Houston Texans have 12 selections entering the 2023 draft tied with the Las Vegas Raiders for the most of any team. We know that can change during the process. Change is the key word. Will there be change after the draft ends? This is a rumor that started to gain some steam early in the week. John McClain of the Houston, not of the Houston Chronicle anymore. Boy, old habits die hard. He's now with Gallery Sports, and I think he does some stuff for Odyssey.com. Guy who's covered the Texans and Houston football for decades for a thousand years he wrote that he had yes he wrote that he had heard a rumor at the league meetings that Nick Casario the GM of the team was going to be leaving after 
the draft. And McLean doesn't buy it. It doesn't make sense to him, but it's out there. Mike Silver, your former colleague at SI, he's now with the San Francisco Chronicle, among other places. He added a little bit to that yesterday, saying that the talk has been that Adam Peters, the assistant GM of the 49ers, would be targeted by the Texans if that change is made. That would, of course, reunite Peters with D'Amico Ryans, the new head coach of the Texans, who was the defensive coordinator for two years in San Francisco. And um, the, the sense that I currently have is, because there was one school of thought that Casario just wants to go back to New England, it, it's more of a push if it happens. It's more of a push than a walk away. But, you know, Peter, we texted some about this last night as we were putting together our topics for the show. It is weird to think that in the midst of this rebuild, this hard reset by the Texans, you would have Casario so deeply involved in it. Casario in charge of this draft with 12 picks on the way in with the second overall selection. And then as soon as the dust settles, you give him a pink slip. It just doesn't make sense. Here's the reason why... It's a very, very odd situation. And why, if I were Cal McNair, knowing that uh, Nick Casario was not going to be there after the draft, why I would do it now. Uh, Or I would have done it a month ago. It's very, very simple. That let's say that Nick Casario does leave, and I don't know that he's going to leave or not. I guess I would not be surprised if he did leave. But let's say that he, uh, uh, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios that we can play out in our head. Why would this guy who controls the draft two years in a row, essentially, not controls it, but has absolute prime positions, they will have seven picks in the top 50 over a two-year period, you know, last year and this year. That is a huge way to, to, to kind of build the base, the cornerstones of a new franchise going forward. And then he walks away a week after the draft and you bring in some other uh, scouting director, GM, you bring in some other guy who might say, hmm, I would never have taken Derek Stingley third overall. Oh, let's see. I, I wouldn't abandon Davis Mills the way they are. Hmm, I wouldn't pick Will Anderson this year at number two. What, you know, whatever happens. It just isn't conducive to a smart long-term build. And, and look, I realize if you're Cal McNair, if you have made this decision, and I certainly don't know that he has, I realize that it is an awkward time of year to make a huge change like this. It certainly is. And maybe you don't have a good alternative to be able to go through an interview process and get a new general manager in March or April before a draft. I understand how difficult that is. But the flip side is, if you're going to stick a new general manager with, with this base of players who you have no idea if he would have chosen them or not, it's just, it just is not good for the long-term best interest of this team. Not to mention, Mike, not to mention that, you know, if you are a new general manager and what if this general manager does not take a quarterback high in this draft? And what if the new general manager on whatever team he worked on, what if the number one quarterback on their board is C.J. Stroud and you just bypassed him 
uh, to take Willie Anderson or Tyree Wilson or whoever it is, you know, high in this draft. It, this is a thing that's really fraught with problems. Three reasons, though, why I lean forward a little bit when I see this discussion. First reason is there have been several times over the past few years where rumors like this emerge about a GM being on the way out after a draft. And more often than not, those rumors come to fruition. I just think it's very difficult to keep a lid on that chatter if the GM of the team already senses what's coming. You're lining up your landing spot. People start talking. People in the building know that the GM isn't as involved as maybe he should be. Something's weird. There's a weird vibe here as we're in this period of maximum time at the office something doesn't seem right it's just conducive to the chatter second and to quote our good friend big cat dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things and the texans no it doesn't make sense but what have the texans done the past five years that has made any sense to anyone from a football standpoint so they'd be the candidates to do something like this that makes no sense third and most importantly and i'm going to take you back 17 years peter i'm going to take you back to the year of your eventful flight home from the Vince Young Pro Day workout. That year, Cal McNair's late father, Bob, fired Dom Capers, the first coach he ever hired to, to run the Texans, right after the 2005 season ended. But didn't fire Charlie Casserly, the GM of the team. And remember there was talk that Casserly, it, it came out later. He resigned to take some job at the league office that he never got. But I had heard before the draft, Casserly's out after the draft. Just Bob McNair didn't want to fire both guys at the same time. It was a bad look for him to fire both guys at the same time. So here we are 17 years later, Cal's in charge, and maybe there's some some basis for Cal to think, I'm going to do it the way Dad did it. I'm going to fire the coach after the season. I'm going to wait until after the draft to push out the GM, and when you throw in the fact that Jack Easterby, who was so instrumental in the hiring of Nick Casario, remember they went off the board. The executive search firm had finalists, and Easterby got Cal McNair to go off the board and go hire Casario. Easterby's out. So that's kind of a factor as well, I think, in all of this. So, yeah, for any other properly run team, this makes no sense whatsoever. But as it relates to the Texans, and given all the dysfunction we've seen from that team the past several years, if any of the teams is going to screw something like this up, it's going to be them. Yeah, but I mean, I, you're in a difficult situation. And there are going to be a lot of teams because, Mike, you know, the, the time when a general manager can move is either right after the season or right after the draft. And NFL teams frown upon giving... Uh, very key guys in a draft room. They frown upon giving those guys the opportunity to move before the draft is over. This is their Super Bowl. Like, if you talk about Adam Peters with the 49ers, I know because I was in the 49ers draft room in 2017, the first year of John Lynch, Kyle Shanahan, and the key guy on the personnel side by far was Adam Peters. You know, in talking about, you know, in the course of that draft, talking about this guy versus that guy, all that stuff. And so you understand why John Lynch would say, particularly, this is a very weird year for the 49ers draft, by the way. They don't pick until the 90s. You know, they've got three picks 
very late in the third round of this draft. So I, I truly don't know what John Lynch would say if uh, Cal McNair said on, you know, March 15th, hey, listen, we want to interview Adam Peters. And remember, your interview process on at any point when you're interviewing for a general manager, you have to interview minority candidates. And so it's just a very difficult time because, as I say, it's almost like a coach leaving a team, you know, on December 28th, you know, leaving a playoff team because you uh, you get an opportunity somewhere else. You rarely see that. You see it sometimes going to college football. But in essence, you almost always see this stuff happening after the season. And that's what's difficult in this whole thing. So I'll understand if it happens, you know, a few days, a week, two weeks after the season. But I'll tell you one thing. It'll just be another step in the wrong direction for the Texans. Bottom line, it's officially become a thing now. And if the Texans want to get people to quit thinking about it, talking about it, if they want to debunk it, now's the time for Cal McNair to make a clear statement that no changes are going to be made after the draft, that it's all poppycock and everyone can move on. All right, let's take a break. When we return, we're going to play a little game of what's more likely within the context of some of the rumors making the rounds as it relates to the draft, which begins in only 13 days. More PFT Live right after this. There are the names of the 17 incoming prospects who will be present in Kansas City for the 2023 draft. And we know what happens. Sometimes the wait in the green room is a lot longer than expected. But plenty of guys there to come out and get a big bear hug from the commissioner as the commissioner gets booed by the 300,000 or so in attendance. It won't be 300,000 all at once, but it'll be a lot of people. And we know that's part of the sport of the draft. Boo the commissioner no matter what, even though they should be thanking the commissioner because really it's it's his project that resulted in this traveling roadshow that is this opportunity for fans across the country to enjoy the draft. Okay, Peter, um, we're going to get into a little what's more likely, but before we do that, why is this draft so seemingly more unpredictable than others we've encountered in recent years? Mike, I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, um, if you think about what usually happens in the run-up to a draft, we have a pretty good idea based on track records of what either is going to happen or what has a very good chance to happen. But the problem is, if you think about it, there is so much newness with franchises at the top of the draft. If you look at the top nine teams in this draft, eight of them have either first or second year coaches or GMs or both. And so they haven't really had enough time to build a track record. So you even take uh, all of the general managers who are either in their first or second year. And you look obviously at, you you look at the Arizona Cardinals. What book does Monty Ossinfort present, the new general manager? You don't know. You don't know if Jonathan Gannon is saying, please, please, just give me Will Anderson or someone who I can build a front seven around. I desperately need that. And you look at, you know, how much 
in- influence is Shane Steichen going to have in Indianapolis? Is he going to be begging Chris Ballard to trade up to go get the quarterback he wants? Seattle is the same. Schneider and Carroll have been there forever. But then Detroit Lions, second-year team. You know, uh, Las Vegas Raiders, second year. Atlanta Falcons, second year. Chicago Bears, second year. All of them with second-year coaches and GMs. You simply do not have a good feel for what those teams are going to do based on history because there's such a short history. I think there's one other thing, okay? And that is there is so much divergence of opinion about the quarterbacks. And Mike, I I have had a team that wants a quarterback tell me that, first of all, A, Will Levis belongs in the second round, and B, that if you pick Anthony Richardson, you need to basically be disciplined and say, Anthony Richardson, we're taking you, but we're not going to Zach Wilson you, okay? We're not going to have you play before you're ready to play. And again, it's easy to sit back and say the Jets made a mistake with Zach Wilson. But right now, Zach Wilson is 22 games into his career. And I can tell you, living in New York City, there aren't many Jets fans who ever want to see Zach Wilson play quarterback for their team again. And the reason that Anthony Richardson needs time is very simple. He's only started one year of college football. And man, he had a bunch of clunkers in that one year. Now he had some great moments. But I do think that the one thing that this draft has is not only uncertainty at quarterback, but justifiable uncertainty, especially with Richardson and Levis in how high they could go and the dependence on them early by fan bases starved for a new quarterback. And it's that dynamic of the team or two that falls in love with a guy that keeps their mouth shut. And we find out when we find out, as we did in 2017, when the Chiefs sprang up from the low 20s to number 10 to get Patrick Mahomes. And then we found out that they had loved him all along, even though he wasn't regarded as the guy who should have been the first pick in the draft that year. In hindsight, he clearly should have been the first pick of the Cleveland Browns. What an alternate history that is, Cleveland fans. You could have had Patrick Mahomes, and you didn't. 49ers, you could have had Patrick Mahomes, and you didn't. Chicago Bears, you went with Mitchell Trubisky instead of Patrick Mahomes, although that's that's an old scar that still throbs for Bears fans, I assume, every year at draft time and will continue to do so. The team that has... The first pick this year, courtesy of the trade with the Bears that went down several weeks back on a late Friday afternoon, the Panthers. At number one, what's more likely right now, Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud as the first overall pick? And, Peter, you're the one that started the pushback against Stroud. You've swayed the betting markets. You're reporting and others. It went from Bryce Young favorite, they do the trade, C.J. Stroud favorite, then after a few weeks, uh uh-oh, Bryce Young favorite again. You know... I certainly didn't attempt to sway anything. I just attempted to uh, write about what I heard. And what I heard is that there are influential voices inside the Panthers who favor Bryce Young. And the one other thing that I had heard during the course of this process is before Josh McCown, now the quarterback coach of the Carolina Panthers, was hired by the Carolina Panthers, that he was raving to friends in the NFL about Bryce Young. Uh, 
and about what a good NFL quarterback he was going to be. And you know, Mike, this week I had a conversation um, with uh, Archie Manning, who's got a new show on ESPN about, uh, you know, about the, the young quarterbacks and the quarterbacks coming into this draft. And their first show was about Bryce Young. And he, he, he said a few things about how the game has changed since he played and certainly since Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf were uh, dueling to be the number one pick uh, 25 years ago, this week, in fact. But, you know, his whole point was that, you know, you need to be a distributor of the football. You need to be an assist man. And if you at the quarterback position are really smart and you understand how to distribute the ball, then that overcomes a lot of the size thing. And again, look, I've also had teams tell me, and I, I do think that Bryce Young's going to be the first pick, but I've also had teams tell me that defending against Bryce Young is going to be difficult, but you've got to get big defensive linemen who are going to hit the quarterback. So it's going to be uncharted waters, particularly going to a team that has a building but not great offensive line right now. You made a fascinating point this week in Football Morning in America. If Bryce Young does go to Carolina twice per year, he'll now see Calais Campbell, who is 10 inches taller and 110 pounds heavier than Bryce Young. The physics are not in your favor, as we've learned with Tua Tonga-Vailoa. That's a reason for some to shy away from Bryce Young. But I agree with you, Peter. It just feels like right now it's inevitable. Chris Sims had a great point this week. All these reports pointing toward Bryce Young, part of the process of getting the Carolina Panthers fan base ready for what's coming because the momentum was C.J. Stroud. The presumption was Stroud. You better get people in a position where they know what's going to happen so they're not stunned 13 days from now when that name is announced by the commissioner to start the process. What's more likely, Jalen Carter, the controversial Georgia defensive tackle, goes top five or falls out of the top ten? What's more likely? That is the question of the week. And obviously, you know, as I wrote the other day, Mike, uh, Jalen Carter visited two teams that could be fascinating landing spots for him this week. One, uh, number five, the Seattle Seahawks. One, number seven, the Las Vegas Raiders. And I think you can't know whether these teams are going to pick this player until he actually comes in and he spends time with you and you look him in the face and talk to him. I am going to say that he falls out of the top five uh, without any knowledge. I think the big team in the top five is Seattle. Pete Carroll has always been willing to take on guys who other coaches might consider risky behavior players. And so uh, I think if Pete Carroll looks John Schneider in the face and says, let's not even move. Let's take the best overall player in this draft, Jalen Carter, and let's team him with our young cadre of really good front seven players and our three-headed monster at safety. And we will have the best defense that we could possibly have. And we will be able to compete defensively right now with Bobby Wagner back and with Jalen Carter and signing Julian Love. We'll be able to compete with the San Francisco 49ers for the best defense in this division.
Here's the question, though. Pete Demolitis likes to do this to us. He takes out the middle, because I think you and I would both be inclined to pick the middle 6-10. to 10. Between the two yeah. options, top five or out of the top ten altogether, which one would you say is more likely? Do you think he slides out of the top ten, that that's more likely than Seattle taking him at five? No, I don't. I don't think he slides out of the top ten. I think somebody is either going to trade up to get him or uh, whether it be Philadelphia, even though, you know, a lot of people have raised Philadelphia as a possibility. And I understand that. It certainly does make sense, especially after losing a similar kind of player in Javon Hargrave. And But I just keep thinking to myself, you took Jordan Davis 14th overall last year, a very similar body type to Jalen Carter, a similar kind of invasive player. And it's just, it's hard for me to accept Howie Roseman picking the same guy basically at 14 and 10, two years in a row. I do think that, and and there's different schools of thought here. Once Jalen Carter began to decline visits to teams, not in the top 10, some thought that this was just a parlor trick by his agent, Drew Rosenhaus, to speak into existence a top 10 pick. The other possibility is he's already gotten an assurance from someone he trusts. He's been doing this 35 years. You have to have relationships founded on trust in this business and that he trusts the information he's gotten that someone is definitely taking him in the top 10 if he's there. So I think he wouldn't be attending the draft if they didn't firmly believe he's going in the top 10. Uh, that to me, when I saw his name on the list, that told me this guy's going top 10. So I'd say it's more likely he goes top five than he falls out of the top 10. And there's a fascinating team to watch in the top 10. I was on 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh this week, and they mentioned to me there was a report out of Chicago that the Bears and the Steelers are talking about a flip-flop of number nine and number 17. And on the surface, Jalen Carter doesn't seem like the kind of guy that Mike Tomlin would want. But at a deeper level, yes, and when I does. think back of all the guys who have left Pittsburgh over the years, when they go play for other coaches, and those coaches say, my God, I had no idea what a problem this guy was going to be. Mike Tomlin found a way to speak to his better angels and get the most out of him. I mean, Jalen Carter is exactly the lump of clay that Mike Tomlin could take. And given his unique style and his underrated ability to get the most out of every player who's on his team, he's the guy who could get Jalen Carter to maximize his potential. Hey, look, I, w- I, I would argue that, and again, the, both of these points are a little bit overrated and a little bit maybe over-speaking, but I would argue that Mike Tomlin got Hall of Fame careers out of two difficult players to handle, borderline Hall of Fame careers at least, and that's James Harrison, even though Harrison had been with different coaches and all that, and I understand it but also Antonio Brown. And and so I think that Mike Tomlin has the ability to look at players for their abilities. And he figures it's my job to sometimes take the massive headaches that go along with these players. Now, I can't think of a better place for Jalen Carter than to go and play for Mike Tomlin. It is, it's beyond perfect because, look, Mike Tomlin understands that, you know how, Mike, you, you always want to know what is the most important thing, okay? And remember in City Slickers, 
you know, when the old cowboy just hold, held up one finger, you got to figure out what's the most important thing. What is it, Curly? What is the most important thing? Well, only you know that. And I think Mike Tomlin understands that better than any coach in the NFL. What's the most important thing? Sunday at 1 p.m. at Acrisure Field. I almost called it Heinz Field. Sunday at 1 p.m. on the field for those three hours. That is the most important thing. And Mike Tomlin will understand that if they end up loving Jalen Carter and he will figure it out. And I just, I think that's the perfect place for him to go. And when the Steelers trade up, they're trading up because there's somebody they really love and there's somebody they really want. Troy Polamalu, for example, a guy who became a Hall of Famer there. So something to keep an eye on with Jalen Carter. Either way, I don't think he gets out of the top ten. Let's take a break. Saquon Barkley wants to be paid, and one of his division rivals who gets paid to tackle him is supporting Saquon's case. More PFT Live right after this. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It was pointed out on Twitter that down the stretch last year, Saquon Barkley did not have the same production that he had early in the season. And the numbers don't lie, but Michael Parsons wanted none of it. The Cowboys linebacker said, yeah, that what happens when you're the best players on your team. The scheme on Monday morning is we won't let Saquon Barkley beat us. People just think we're out here playing for free. GTFO, that MF is that offense pay him now unless there's some sort of a jedi mind trick going on here i'll assume that what michael parsons says is true and look barkley staying away has that 10.1 million dollar franchise tender trying to get a long-term deal you know this is one of the problems with the system he's going to have six years in the nfl by the time he hits the market next year he's not going to be attractive to other teams not as attractive as he'd be this year he's trying to get the giants to give him a little bit more so he's staying away to see if he can get that long-term contract that he wasn't permitted to go get Peter on the open market. Yeah, I think it's become very, very difficult for running backs. I mean, you have a top five back this year in Miles Sanders going from Philadelphia into free agency, and the best he could do was four years, uh, $24 million, I think it was, right? $6 million a year. The fact is you don't pay running backs. It's what the whole argument is today right now about B. John Robinson. And, uh, you know, B. John Robinson clearly is a singular talent in this draft at the receiver or running back position. 
You know, I talked to Steve Sarkeesian this week, his coach at Texas, and he talked about everything he can do, and teams definitely would be able to put him out as a slot receiver. And and so, but I'm, I'm referring to running backs in general. Bijan Robinson is the Saquon Barkley of 2023. And he's even, he might be even better, Mike, because no one would say, I will play Saquon Barkley 10 plays a game at wide receiver or as a slot receiver. And Sarkeesian and other people I've talked to saying, there's no question. If a team wants to use him as a receiver, either in the slot or outside, they definitely could do so. And he will be a problem. So, but I think as far as Saquon goes, I understand totally what he's doing. If he's a running back, he's only going to get one payday. That's it. Only one. This is it. And he can either sign his tender and ensure that the one payday is fairly minuscule compared to what a great player would think he should get. Certainly compared to what, uh, you know, to what the Cowboys obviously in in kind of upsetting the market, you know, the apple cart market for Ezekiel Elliott, um, paying him whatever it was, six years, 50 million. I think the biggest issue here, Mike, I don't think people are going to repeat the long-term big contract of Ezekiel Elliott because Ezekiel Elliott was a nice running back over four years since he signed that deal. A nice running back. Was he $50 million worth of a running back? No, he wasn't. So that's why I think Saquon Barkley needs to get whatever he can get this year in terms of guarantees from the New York Giants. Let's take a break. We'll have more PFT Live right after this. We all have all the respect in the world for Devin. Um... He's done some great things for us as a player, and we look forward to more from him in the future. So he's on our team. Um, we um, are looking forward to this season. We're gearing up for this season with the draft right now, free agency. And, um, you know, looking forward to him being a part of this team. And if he has the kind of year that we all think he's capable of, this, you know, we can hopefully put this to rest and, and everybody's happy. No intention. Jason Light, GM of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, saying the thing that always gets said right before a player is traded. We have no intention to trade. We have no intent to trade Percy Harvin. We have no intent to trade Russell Wilson. We have no intent to trade Devin White. I don't like this approach, Peter, when you have a guy that's put in four years, he's entering his fifth-year option, you're refusing to give him a long-term contract, you're basically holding out this year as a carrot And if he plays well enough, you'll keep him, maybe even franchise tag him. And if he doesn't play well enough, he walks away. If you like him, if you want him, pay him. If you don't, trade him to someone who will, assuming there's a team out there willing to do it. That's the thing we don't know. Are the phone lines burning up at one buck place for teams that want to trade for Devin White? If there are, then they should let him go to a team that's going to give him the financial reward that the team won't. Yeah, I think... This is an interesting situation because Jason Light's responsibility now is to get the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ready for the future and out of the Super Bowl-related salary cap problems that 
most teams that win the Super Bowl, you look at Tampa, you look at, I should say, most teams that win the Super Bowl that need to build for the future also, they all have these issues. And so I think that's why Jason Light is saying, hey, listen, play this year at 11.5 or whatever it is, and we'll try to take care of you after the season, but we just can't give any guarantees right now. It is a strange time for the Buccaneers, especially because they're in a division where they could win it again, maybe with a losing record in 2023. We'll take a break and wrap up this Friday edition of PFT Live. Right after this. Um, I was going to say something else, and now I've completely lost track of it. Somebody was yeah. was doing uh, the with the, what do they call that with the water and the why am I why am I blanking on it you know the spraying of the water there's there's a more fancy word for it when you have the water machine that sprays water the cleaning with the water anyway power washing that's what it is power washing who is that whose body am I on. That's can we pull that back up? I know we have to go, but who's because th- that kind of looks like me, but that's not me. That's not me. Is that me? That's not me. I don't know. We need to get to the bottom of that. Peter, is that you? It's not me. That must be me because it's slim and attractive. <laughs> we gotta go. Everybody have a great weekend. See you Monday morning. Thanks for some of your time. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.